0: What we find with sensory processing, it's not just always a particular system. There can be multiple systems involved and it really is a matter of self-regulation. So when all of those systems are not working together, your sensory system is sort of out of whack and it can lead to those fight flight type experiences because kids are getting overwhelmed with all that information.
1: Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? I need to share a goal with you. My goal for the rest of the summer is to increase the number of rating and reviews I have for this podcast. And I can only accomplish it with your help. So, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, please, 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 if you would be so kind, provide me with that rating and review. I just need more of them. And check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and The ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maben. Whether you're looking for great interviews, incredible tips, a well-informed, diverse perspective on ADHD, or the ways that ADHD affects women in particular, you'll find something valuable in these shows. Don't forget to join all of the ADHD Rewired podcast network on Tuesday, August 10th at 1.30 Eastern for a live Q&A. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. Finally, this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Kerry Wilmot. Kerry is a pediatric occupational therapist. With over 20 years of experience in the field, she's a consultant to the toy industry as the toy queen and the author of Wired Differently, a teacher's guide to understanding sensory processing challenges. Carrie talks to us about the important role sensory processing plays in the lives of the neurodiverse. She tells us about the role of an occupational therapist, reveals that we actually have eight senses, not five, illuminates the difference between treatment and woo when it comes to sensory integration, and shares the role that a healthy sensory diet can play in self-regulation for both kids and adults. All right, let's get rolling.
0: My name is Carrie Wilmot. I'm a pediatric occupational therapist, and I've worked with kids for the last 20 years in a variety of different settings. I've worked in the public school system, charter school system, outpatient children's hospitals, early intervention, and home health care. So I really kind of run the gamut in terms of working with kids in all areas. And I ended up writing a book a few years ago based on a lot of work that I had done in the early childhood preschool setting where kids were basically failing preschool and nobody really knew what the situation was. So as an occupational therapist, I was called in as part of the evaluation to see, you know, is there, were there sensory processing needs? What were the reasons as to why some of these kids were struggling in that classroom when they were just three, four and five years old. In addition to being a pediatric occupational therapist, 12 years ago, toyqueen.com was created as a resource for parents to find toys, learning experiences and opportunities to help kids improve upon their development through play. So I have worked a lot in the toy industry space, consulting with companies and really promoting play and helping kids learn through play.
1: I want to talk about the sensory processing component, but first, what is an occupational therapist? That's one of the things that we hear a lot about. And if you haven't worked in a school or, or specifically worked with an, with an OT, it kind of seems like a mystery job
0: yeah everybody thinks we find people jobs right so you know as an occupational therapist we we must find people jobs uh but really the idea it's a rehabilitation profession that started after uh the world war for rehabilitation basically what occupational therapists found is that people made improvements in their physical range of motion and strength and coordination when they were able to connect the activity was something that they enjoyed doing. So your occupation or your job or whatever your motivator is based on your role. So if you loved gardening, then it was, how do we improve your strength and coordination while you're doing gardening so that you're pairing something purposeful while looking at how do we improve your physical health and strength? Then we sort of adapted into a, a lot of different environments. So it, Occupational therapists can work with elderly and nursing homes, Um, but as kids, when we work with children, their job is to play and their job is to learn. And so we sort of fell into this role of teaching kids how to learn their motor skills through play. Um, So as an occupational therapist, we function differently in a lot of settings, but it's learning through play, but also learning how to do self care skills independently. So. You know, how do you hold your toothbrush and brush your teeth thoroughly? How do you coordinate the use of two hands to tie your shoelaces? How do you know the routines of getting dressed? Uh, When you're in school, are you able to show enough strength and coordination to hold your pencil properly so that when you need to write letters, you can form them accurately, put them on the spaces, uh, put them in the lines, and leave spaces between your words? And so we have this ability to really help kids build their physical strength and coordination also while they're doing something purposefully that's part of their life, which is learning and playing.
1: It sounds like it's almost kind of fine tuning stuff. Like it sounds like sort of the small things that we don't necessarily think about or that are really, really frustrating because we don't understand why our kid is struggling with it. Oh, my kid's teeth are full of cavities, but they brush their teeth every day. I don't understand. Right. Like, cause there's this fine tune of like, well, the toothbrush is just being held at the wrong angle and they're missing a whole piece of their teeth because of the angle. Or I don't get why my kid can't tie their shoes. I don't know what I'm doing wrong in trying to teach them how. And it turns out it's like a muscle coordination thing.
0: Yes. It can be a coordination thing. It can just be developmental that those skills have not quite yet developed yet for whatever reason. Um, it, And we are trained to use assessment tools to go in and look and see where kids are functioning at their developmental level and then make those improvements to get them to their next steps. So maybe it's that we're building their strength. Maybe they don't have the motor planning skills. Uh, because they're struggling with learning the process of it, but they actually do have the coordination part, but they're not able to remember all the steps in sequence and do them over and over again. So it's really pretty complicated in terms of what, you know, everybody, when you watch an occupational therapy session, people are like, that's the lady that brings, or, you know, that's the person who brings the bag of toys and they just really look like they're having fun over there, but it really is playing with a purpose to help kids feel more confident while we're building skills and moving them through those developmental phases so that they can be as independent as possible. The tricky part from, you know, because everyone looks at the motor part and now we have the sensory component, right? So on top of it, uh, as occupational therapists, we're able to look at something called sensory processing or sensory integration. And that is how the brain reacts to all of the sensory information that's coming in from the environment and the world around you. So we have five different senses, sight, taste, touch, smell, hearing, right? The main ones. And as occupational therapists, we add, used to be two, now we're actually talking about three additional senses. One is called proprioception. And there are receptors in your muscles and in your joints that basically give you information about body awareness and how you are in the world. Then there's your vestibular sense, which comes from your inner ear. And that's your sense of balance and coordination. And the third one that we're now talking a lot about is something called interoception. And that's how you have receptors actually, even in your organs and how, if that, those are not working correctly, you, you know, kids are experiencing things like tummy aches and constipation and all like the physical ailments that a lot of kids will complain about, we sometimes can look back to the fact that maybe there's some dysregulation in that particular system. And so if you think about there being a traffic cop in your brain and all this information from the world is coming into your brain, the traffic cop has to figure out what to pay attention to and what to disregard. And that's the tricky part. So if the traffic cop's not working correctly, we might pay too much attention to something else, or we might not pay enough attention. Like an example would be uh, with younger kids. A lot of people talk about how when you give them something like Play-Doh or like a sticky substance or something wet, that kids will look at that and then they kind of freak out that they don't want to touch it. So that's, touch or tactile sense is being hypersensitive. Basically kids are, then you begin to avoid Play-Doh. Then you see Play-Doh coming across the room and you're crying. Like, so sometimes when the system is out of whack, we get these kind of interesting or different types of behaviors that start to make people think like, okay, that's not a typical thing that most kids would do in that experience. When they see Play-Doh, they want to play with it and build with it. So why is that particular child not able to do that? And what we find with sensory processing, it's not just always a particular system. There can be multiple systems involved and it really is a matter of self-regulation. So when all of those systems are not working together, your sensory system is sort of out of whack and it can lead to those fight flight type experiences because kids are getting overwhelmed with all that information. So it's our job to figure out, do kids have a sensory processing disorder? Is there, are there enough things within each system to say, Hey, there's a, there's a little more, you know, we're all sensory beings and we all do and have sensory quirks and things that make us unique, but are there enough things there to say that, you know what, if that child is really struggling in their world, because, There's enough systems that are not working together in harmony. And how do we fix that?
1: So one of the things that always makes me twitchy when I hear about this stuff and it's, I am ready to blame it on my lack of knowledge and my lack of experience, but when not everyone and clearly not you, but there are some folks out there who are like, oh yeah, you just need to have your kid like stand on one foot and touch their nose 12 times. And then they won't have ADHD or anxiety anymore that's a thing that gets thrown around where people are like, well, your kid just doesn't have proper proprioception and inner ear balance. And we can fix that with these exercises and then they will never have a problem again. Now I, I've worked with folks with, with my own kids who are saying like, we need to work on this sort of stuff to help them better manage their anxiety. And we're not trying to claim they're going to magically cure stuff, but I am curious about the use of OT strategies as a, as a way to help regulate and manage anxiety. And it sounds like anxiety as it occurs through sensory integration, is that a thing? And where's the line between, and how do we recognize the line between like treatment and magic bullet nonsense, just trying to steal your money?
0: So as an occupational therapist, when we're looking at eligibility, right, we're looking at, is there a sensory component? Is there usually a motor component? And what impact does that have on the child's functioning, right? There needs to be some pretty significant delays in terms of what they're not able to do in comparison to their peer group, right? So that's kind of the hallmark for OT eligibility is that they're not functioning in their daily life as they should, because this sensory stuff is a little bit more intense than it would be for somebody else. So usually like when I am working with parents, the goal is, you know, we teach them, the parents about self-regulation, how to look at their children and their behavior, I guess, or what, what they're exhibiting and trying to understand, like, can we stop that situation before it escalates to a point of no return, whether it be a tantrum or a meltdown or frustration or whatnot. And then if it does get to that point, how do we help kids self-regulate and get back to that baseline area? At the same time, we're working on the underlying motor components of things like balance and coordination and the fine motor skills, if that's a barrier to their functional success. And we're also trying to teach kids about the self-regulation in itself. Like there's A curriculum called the zones of regulation, there are things that we would use to help teach kids to recognize inside themselves, you know, how do we prevent ourselves from getting overwhelmed? And that usually is looking at things like advocating for taking a break. When I do take a break, you know, how can I include things like exercise so that if I'm feeling overstimulated, I can then take a deep breath, use breathing techniques, use relaxation techniques, and bring ourselves down with different tools into that just right place so that we can learn and make progress. Now, the tricky part that I always say, and this happens a lot, I think for OT, because we tend to see kids in that three, four, five-year-old range where there may not be another diagnosis that's been identified yet, right? Like, unless it's autism, you know, ADHD is not one of those things that we really want to be talking about with two-year-olds, right? But we're seeing maybe some of the dysregulation occurring at younger ages. So kids are making it to probably OT before they're making it to neuropsychologist or a psychologist for further testing. And so I always say to parents that as an occupational therapist, I have tools and strategies and the water is a little muddy, right? Like we, can try these strategies. We can improve their strength and coordination. We can try to work on the self-regulation piece, but I can't rewire neurons such as kids that might have a diagnosis of ADHD. Like if that's going to be there, it's a neurological situation that is going to be there. And so that is usually the primary thing. And we'll figure that out as we go along, but it doesn't hurt to help improve the self regulation. But usually what happens at some point is we get kind of like a tipping point where we start to realize that we've improved their coordination. We've, we've taught them how to focus so that they can now balance, right? Cause that's always the part with kids with ADHD, they go to balance and it's not that they don't have balance. It's that they don't have the focus sometimes to be able to, show you that they can balance, you know, they go to stand on one foot and they're like, "Whoa, wobbling all over the place. And then you're like, no, okay, we're going to try this again. Stand in this red spot. When I say, go, you're going to lift your foot, take a deep breath. Here we go. Lift your foot. We're going to count to 10. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, a child that can't stand on one foot is standing on one foot for 10 seconds. So either way, the, the attention piece is going to be there. And that's something that sort of will get certain figured out as kids go down that path. But I would agree that those are conversations you should be having with your therapist about, you know, we can't diagnose ADHD, but we can also provide valuable information to parents who are on that process to take back to their doctors or psychologists or whoever to say, okay, this is what we've seen. This is what we've done. And this is still what's left. So how do we manage what's left? And so I see OT as kind of like a piece of the pie, but definitely not you know, the 100% answer to the solution.
1: That's my perspective as well. I've just had conversations with people who have something to sell as it relates to OT and are making these outrageous claims. Like I've talked to a guy who was like, had something to sell and was saying that it worked for him because he couldn't speak in front of a group. And then he like learned how to crawl and could suddenly speak in front of hundreds of people. I'm like, that's not a thing. Like that, I don't think that's what happened. That sounds like magic bullet nonsense. And it drives me nuts because I work in this field professionally, and I'm not a magic bullet. I don't try to claim that I can magically solve your ADHD. I try to make it really clear. Look, 10% better. That's what we want. We want to focus on consistent, regular growth and improvement. And it's going to be hard and it's going to take a long time. Nothing about this is easy. There is no magic bullet. Right. Except like exercise and medication, right? Like those are kind of close to magic bullets. But the exercise stuff is not, I learned how to crawl and now my ADHD is gone. It's like, no, you're, there's breathing components that are important. There's the OT sensory stuff that comes with exercise, particularly intense exercise and focused exercise that is going to train your brain and improve stuff. But even that isn't going to make your ADHD go away any more than a than Adderall will.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I don't disagree with you there at all. You know, I think what what happened sort of in OT is that we have found all of these tools to help with self-regulation, right? There's fidget toys and weighted blankets and compression shirts and seamless socks and you know, there's all these things that have been created to make a certain issue more tolerable. That's not self-regulation. That's a band-aid in my perspective, right? So to me, I always go back to the form of therapy and the understanding for parents is really looking at self-regulation as a whole and that it's a big emotional process that we need to think about and realize that, you know, going to that jumpy house place yesterday might've seemed like a really good idea, but it's going to potentially be a problem tomorrow, right? Because all that intense sensory input, maybe there, was a, you know, there wasn't preparation for leaving. There's a huge tantrum that occurs in the parking lot. Everybody gets home. Nobody goes to bed on time. You know, with kids that really, truly struggle with this self-regulation piece because they're sensory issues, that stuff just doesn't disappear within a second because we gave that kid a weighted blanket when they went to bed there's a bigger, a bigger thought process going on. And I think, you know, too many people think that we need to have all the gadgets and all the items, and they will make a problem better for a short period of time. But the real way to fix it is through a sensory diet and really thinking about self-regulation and how kids are getting what their body needs consistently before the problem occurs or to reduce the incidences of being overstimulated so that they are more emotionally able to handle what happens when they get frustrated. Does that make sense?
1: It does. I have so many questions. So one thing that I don't have a question about, because I think it's kind of obvious is seamless socks are pretty easy to understand, right? Like if there's a seam in your sock, it's going to bug you and you're going to be aware of it. And that's distracting you, that's, that's making you a little aggravated, that, that's sending us closer to dysregulation. Totally understand. The two things that I wonder about, I know that weighted blankets work. I've laid under a weighted blanket and fallen asleep in like five minutes, which is not how I work. And I don't understand why. Like I don't know why that happens. So I'm curious about why weighted blankets work. I get fidgets. I'm playing with a Lego minifig of Wolverine as we talk. I understand fidgets. I'd love to play with that a little bit. And why is that a good thing? Why is that stuff we should let our kids do? But my bigger question that might subsume those other ones is what is a sensory diet? What does that mean?
0: So a sensory diet is looking at, we, we look at each child's profile individually, right? That's why it's important to have, I think, if you can, an occupational therapist help you at least for a little bit to get some information about What is your child experiencing? What are the systems that are the biggest deficits for them, right? Are they um, seeking so much sensory input because that vestibular system keeps saying to them, run, 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 spin, you know, roll, like doing all that bump, right?
1: And the vestibular system is what?
0: Your movement, your sense of movement. So in each system, you can crave that input or you might be aversive to it. That's why a lot of those ki- these kids are, they're bumping into walls, they're crashing, they're leaping from the top of the couch. They're taking excessive risks without safety using movement. They're the the risk takers, right? And they're not always, they're jumping into something without actually realizing what they're doing before they get there. And they're doing it in a way that people are like, oh, this is scary, right? I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> in each system, you have those discrepancies. And so it's important for somebody to help figure out with your particular child, like, okay, what are the systems that are the most impacted? What are the things that we need to help them learn? Because those systems are impacting that. And then we come up with this plan. So the sensory diet is really the plan to figure out how do we get all these systems to work together in harmony. And the tricky part is, is that everybody is unique and not all kids are the same. And where their regulation system is in one minute when I do an evaluation might be completely different if I saw them at their house three days later. Because, like, what we're talking about is that there are environments and situations that can impact how you react to sensory input, right? So, as an OT, it's important to, for us to look at each child individually and come up with a plan. The self regulation part of a sensory diet involves looking at mainly what we call giving kids like motor input. So it might be that, and that's where you were talking about this exercise component. It's pretty much prepping your brain to be ready for the day. So when they're getting up um, in order to improve their arousal level, it might be things like, you know, trying to engage kids in an obstacle course or, you know, getting up and going for a bike ride, getting their system going and moving so that it's, ready to start the day. Like usually we're talking about 10 to 15 minutes of motor activity. And that's why it's either usually like an obstacle course or an active, like if you have a trampoline in the backyard or something that kind of gets kids up and going.
1: So in the morning is the way to go. It sounds like
0: the morning's the way to go because it's really, it really just helps No matter really what happened the day before, it sort of helps to set your system in the right spot before you get going. And then like, especially for kids that are going off to school, right? Like there's a lot of things that happen with having to get out the door, getting dressed, uh, whether they take a bus or walk or drive or all the transitions that come with just even sometimes getting into the building, right? Kids can be in a better frame of mind if we've prepared them to be able to handle all that before they leave the house. And then- a couple times later on in the day, still giving kids that same type of outlet, right? So that's why recess at school is so important. Um, That's why kids that have breaks at school, it's important when they're in school to maximize the breaks when they're there, right? Like a lot of kids will be like, yeah, well, I let them walk around the building. Well, that's great that they have that break, but how do we take five minutes of that? And we put it into something like an exercise routine that's really purposeful that gets all their muscles and joints moving, gives them a little bit more bang for their buck versus just walking away and taking more of a passive break than an active break. So really the self-regulation piece is driven by your arousal level. Your arousal level can be changed by movement and activities throughout your day. Then we use the other, the other part of the sensory diet are those things like the fidget toys and the um, weighted blanket and you know all these other Things that we can give kids to utilize that might also make it a little bit easier as another layer. To me, the purpose of the sensory diet is knowing what that child needs, giving them the activities that they need to be in that just right place. And then when we're preparing their system for something though, it's purposeful. So, you know, do I want to do an obstacle course with a kid, get them all regulated and ready to like learn something and then be like, let's go watch TV that's not really a good a good option right like it's t- i often teach parents like well how do we harness that strategy so that if you're preparing them for being in that just right place where they're they're ready to go what activity are you going to give them to do for 10 or 15 minutes that they can really do well and feel confident because they have their most focus and attention for that
1: even the idea of exercising in the morning right your that point about tv kind of landed for me because If I was like, all right, guys, we're going to exercise every morning before school, even if we exercise right up to the time to leave, then they're going to go sit on the bus for like 15, 20 minutes. That's not much different from watching TV, I would think. So this almost sounds like a cultural change in schools would be good if it was like kids got to school and then there was like 15 minutes of calisthenics or something, and then they went to class.
0: So, yeah, like, I mean, I, well, we could argue maybe differently about like the bus, because maybe if you have a kid that's dysregulated and they're not good with their social skills and then they get on the bus and they come into a situation with another kid, maybe they're just more apt to be, have better conversation. Maybe they're just not going to react to something else that's going on the bus because the bus is a whole nother sensory experience, right? With kids who are screaming and yelling and talking, right? So I think it depends on the kid, but the idea is that we, and, and we're not talking about like, and this is where I think a lot of people struggle. I say exercise in the morning and everybody's like, oh gosh, like I don't have an hour. Like I don't have all this time to do all this work. And we're not talking about like, you got to get a gym membership and go do yoga at 5am. Like find a playlist of things like uh, noodle.com has a great, is a great resource of like really just YouTube clips that are five or 10 minutes of something that's going to get the kids going. It's not about like it being perfect. It's not about having to be three hours long. It's really just 10 to 15 minutes of something to get them going. And then making sure that the rest of their day, you have these little breaks built in so that you can keep it going versus not getting the what your system needs and then that leading to the point of frustration or meltdown.
1: My kids and I used to do exercises in the morning. It's one of the many things that COVID derailed. We we have a treadmill and a total gym and we have dice that are like 12-sided dice that have different exercises written or drawn on them. Yeah, And we just, one person's on the treadmill, one person's in on the total gym and one person's rolling dice for five or 10 minutes, depending on how much time we have for it. And then we rotate and everyone does each station.
0: That's exactly it. That's perfect. And, you know, and again, it doesn't need to be like tons of equipment, um, like a therapy ball, like those like 10, $12 therapy balls. You can do so many things with that, just sitting on it and bouncing, rolling on over your belly, having somebody roll it on your back, like throwing it back and forth. And that's kind of where the role of OT comes in as well. Right? Because Parents will tell me, well, this is, these are the five things I have, and this is the space that I have. And then I say, okay, well, this is what you can do with that space. And then I teach the child, okay, when you're in that space, because maybe your parents are getting your siblings ready for school, or they have to do something else. This is what you're going to set a timer. And this is what you're going to do for those couple of minutes. You can do them in any order that you want. You know, we teach the kids how to set up their own obstacle courses, how to follow through on them and do them on their own so that eventually parents don't have to be there participating in it and that they are more independent because that's the goal, right? The goal is to teach kids about self-regulation so that when they grow up, they understand how their system operates and then they can enact these things on their own and do them on their own. And they start to realize, you know, now you know, my son's 11. He knows like he plays hockey, lots of hockey, like 15 hours of hockey a week. And he knows the difference when he does not have that outlet and that he needs to find other ways to fill that void when he's not doing that, whether he's swimming or riding his bike or the other part, you know, would be like, he had a running club at his school, which was awesome. And they would run a mile before school. And it was like, you know, the teachers monitored it and the goal was to run so many miles by the end of the school year. So it was like, it was a club, even just something like that. To me, I was like, that's brilliant. Right. I don't know that they realized why the reason for that, I think it was more, they wanted kids to be active and to fight obesity. Right. But in my mind, I thought, Oh, self-regulation, even if it doesn't have to be a running club, a walking club, you know, just being outside and you know having five to 10 minutes when kids got to school to do that so that when they went into the building, they were ready to learn in a better place than they might've been otherwise not having that input.
1: And ADHD, just to make sure that I circle back and tie this into a little bit of a bow, ADHD and sensory processing challenges goes hand in hand. This is not a thing that's totally disconnected from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I, I know I've got sensory stuff like it's if it's too loud, especially if it's a lot of different noises, like I don't like going to a bar because there's too many people talking and it's hard. It's hard for me to talk to the person I'm with because I'm like, yeah, but I don't know those people. And the thing they're talking about is interesting because I've never heard of that before. And I'm really curious about what those people over there are talking about. And oh, wait, there's another group of people over there that are talking about something that I'm curious about, too. And what did you say? Like that happens to me. And if I, I, I love camping, but man, does wood smoke kick my butt. So there's times when that'll shut me down. I have allergies that can shut me down. Like I can't be anyone near pork when it's cooking because I'm allergic to pork. And immediately I get a headache and I stuff up and I get all spacey. So I, I recognize that's not quite what you're talking about, but those sensory angles also matter. There's other things that we need to do to manage that. And, and physicality helps. Physicality helps me anchor myself, right? Like, the more stressed I am, the more I want to hug from my wife, which kind of drives her nuts, because the more stressed she is, the less she wants a hug, because we're sort of opposite sensorially in that way. Um, but she's learned to humor me. And, and our, some of our kids are like that, too. Some of our kids are like, I have ADHD, I'm really stressed out, I just want to climb on you. And other kids are like, I have ADHD, I'm really stressed out, I want to just run away. And keep running and zipping around. One of my kids is hanging upside down all the time on a pull-up bar we have, in in one of our doorways. He'll he hops up on that thing and watches TV upside down.
0: I think it's important to. It's hard, you know, when we start working with kids. Like I said, they're usually sometimes they're really young, right? And it's you know a two-year-old can't communicate to you exactly what their sensory needs are, and so you have to watch. And so as OTs, we're trained to watch, and then we talk to parents, and then parents tell us what happens, and then they tell us how this whole thing plays out. And, you know, and as kids get older and we're now having these conversations, I think it makes it easier for people to, for them to understand that A, it's okay that I need to do these things. There's a reason why I do them and that's totally fine. It's just about sometimes they're kids, right? They don't choose the right strategy at the right time or what they choose that works for them in that moment might not be the most socially acceptable thing In that particular environment that they're in. So then becomes the conversation of, I understand you really want to hang upside down on the bar because that helps you do that while you're, some kids will do that while they learn, right? You know, like they're doing that while they're practicing their multiplication, you know, (laughs) like, you know, but we can't do that in, we can do that at home, but we can't do that at school. So how can we help you you know learn the way you need to learn and do that in a different way at school that still meets their needs and they'll tell you a lot of times because there's checklists and things that we can go through that help kids sort of identify oh well, I like that and I don't like that and it then it helps you know I want or when I'm in a therapy session with a kid night maybe I'm rolling the therapy ball on their back to help calm them down before we transition to something to work at the table and I'll often say well is your system in the right place where it needs to be are you ready to move on or do you need more and they will more often, almost always, if they can communicate, they'll tell you and and not in a, not in a way that's like, no, I really don't want to go to the table, you know, not in like a, oh yeah, I really want more of this because I really don't want to do what's next. Like they will usually very clearly, no, I need more. Okay. Here's more. Do you need more? No, I'm good. We can go to the table. You know, like they start to realize sort of the people in their lives, especially as OTs, like that, we sort of have this like underlying, communication that i understand and that they understand. And so it doesn't end up usually being behavioral, it ends up being a great working relationship because their sensory needs are getting met and they know that there's somebody that understands them at a level that they're not always able to communicate. And so i think that's the best part is that we can kind of bridge that gap between parents who have totally different learning styles or maybe you don't have ADHD as a parent but your child does. And and so that's a totally different experience when you're not living that same life, you know? So how do we bridge that gap so that everybody can sort of live in harmony and move forward?
1: I, ju- I just want to honor one of the challenges that hides inside of this for adults, where meeting our sensory needs gets tricky because a lot of the way we meet those sensory needs are pretty intimate and it can be hard to ask for that. It can be hard for, it, it can, it's, practically impossible to meet it in an alternative way depending on the relationship that you're in so that i just i'm just sort of noticing that as we talk too that like the older you get kind of the harder it is to get these sensory needs met if you're someone who just needs a lot of deep pressure and that's not a thing that your partner is interested in doing well i but you could sit on me or something couldn't you and they're like that's weird right like but i i really need you to even though i'm 65 years old and you're 65 years old and (laughs) I get it that it's weird, but also like that, for those of you who are listening and are like, wow, that's me. I don't have a solution in, on this one, but I, I want to honor it at least. Does that, does that make sense? Am I going in a reasonable direction here?
0: I think so. But I think, again, it's all about communication, right? Like, I mean, at some point, and here's where I think oftentimes we think about these sensory strategies because only for kids that might have a disability right? But it's not that at all. It's that we are human beings and we all have sensory needs and the world really needs to sort of understand that we all bring something different to the table, not just in terms of our personality, but just our likes and dislikes. And that's completely okay. It's about having communication about your sensory needs and then maybe coming up with a compromise to meet in the middle, right? It's, it's more just, I think the more communicative that we can all be with each other, the more we'll understand the people in our world and maybe even think differently about other people in their situation, put ourselves in their shoes and how would they feel about that? Maybe they're struggling with something similar or there's just, maybe they're struggling with something. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to have some more empathy for that. I think we just need to be better accepting of the fact that everybody has sensory needs and that the more... Sensory strategies, the more environments that we're in that meet the needs or have opportunities for people to learn in a way that makes them feel comfortable, even if it looks different, is really what we need. It's not about everybody needs to conform to doing this one thing this one way, right? Like, why can't we have a? And I think we're making that shift in classrooms where, you know, clearly not everybody, we you know now, not everybody can sit in a chair with their hands folded and learn. listening to one person just talk, right? You know, we are changing environments that meet the needs of kids, but we still have a lot more education to do of teachers and people who are in those roles so that they can understand the deep down reasons as to why one person's standing, one person's jumping, one person's looks like they're sleeping, but they're still learning, (laughs) you know, that we all have these sensory things that make us who we are. And that's okay. As long as we're learning, even if it's different.
1: And just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience?
0: I think that was kind of it. (laughs) I think I shared my ending essential before I, I did my ending essential. People can find me at toy queen on Facebook, toy queen on Twitter, Carrie underscore Wilmot on Instagram, toy queen on YouTube, And my book is Wired Differently, A Teacher's Guide to Understanding Sensory Processing Challenges, and you can buy that on Amazon or through Griffin House, the publisher. Hey,
1: you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at